Well, what an absolute joy it is to be here uh, with you uh, through many dangers, toils, and snares. I showed up at the, uh, uh, at the airport yesterday about 4.45 a.m. Thousands of people were crammed inside going nowhere because the power was out at Raleigh's airport. So TSA pre-check wasn't working. Um, you know, no flights going in or coming out. So I just uh, turned around and came home and... Uh, uh, sent my assistant a text saying to figure it out, which was not nice of me to do. She actually lives in California. So 4.45 a.m. equals 1.45 a.m. her time. Uh, but we figured it out. Um, I have experienced worse. I was on an airplane once when the engine went out. Looked out the left. It's 7.57. Fire comes out the left engine. Um, man, we're stretching out across the aisles. We're holding hands. One lady takes a Sharpie and uh, is writing her social security number uh, on her arms. I'm like, how would you know to do that? <laughs> you just, do you have YouTube videos for that? Um, so, yes, I have seen worse. So, but it's just a joy to be here with you. Let me, let me just say this. Let me just, I, I probably don't need to say it, but let me say it. This is not angry black man time. Uh, I once worked... Uh, uh, at a church, and one of the guys on our team who happens to be white, he says, Brian, if you could live at any time in world history, when would it be? I said, as a black man? It's a dumb question. Now, like 1753 wasn't good for me, 1853 wasn't good, 1953 wasn't good. So we have a lot of work to do, but I'm incredibly hopeful, incredibly hopeful. And so I, I, I want to set the tone for that. I do want to push you. I do want to nudge you. I do want to, to challenge you in some areas. But this ain't, look, I just sold a home in San Jose, California and moved to Raleigh. I don't know what you know about the housing market. I'm not mad, okay? <laughs> so just want you to understand that, all right? So I think we just breathe easy, all right? And I think we just dive into it. Let me say a word of prayer, uh, and then, then we can, we can uh, jump into some things here. Father. You are good. The multi-ethnic church is not a 21st century church growth technique. It is actually how the church began. So we are not discussing anything new. But we here in America, we have gotten so far off course that it feels new. So I pray, Lord God, that what John saw in Jesus, these people would see in me, that during our time together, they would feel for me that I am full of grace and truth. I want that tension. So, Father, would, would you give us a good dialogue with each other? Would you convince us, Lord God, that these things are true? Would you inspire us to get after it, both in our sanctuaries and around our dinner tables? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ma Matthew 16, okay? Let's just, let's just start here. I just want to take some moments, just frame some things. I really want to hang out on the solution side of things. Uh, anybody here ever been to Caesarea Philippi? Anybody? 
Anybody here ever been to Caesarea Philippi? Um, you, you have to go. Um, I, I went with a guy named Ray Vanderlyn. You know about Ray. But you've never been to Caesarea Philippi? Total waste of time. Ray Vanderlyn, best teacher I ever uh, heard in my life. Um, and I've been around a lot of teachers. Um, in the, it, I did a trip in the footsteps of the disciples. Um, we had just sold our house, uh, long story short, so the mail was going to the wrong place, and I show up for this trip, 17-day trip, and I realize it's, it's all hiking. I don't know what you know about black people and hiking. It's not pretty much how we roll, all right? And I know you think I'm stereotyping, watch the Discovery Channel for a week. You will not find too many Tyrones and Keishas on the Discovery Channel. Like, you want me to climb up that mountain for what? Like, that's fun for you, and once I get up it, how am I going to get down? And, like, certain stories you know black folk ain't got nothing to do with. Man gets mauled by bear. You've never heard a Tyrone get mauled by bear. It's just never happened, all right? Even some of the worship songs you know black people didn't write. Oceans. Keisha did not write Oceans. She just got her hair done, okay? So, I don't know how I got off into all that. So, 17-day hike with Ray Vanderlyn, and we walk into Caesarea Philippi, which is the context for Matthew 16. Caesarea Philippi, the first, one of the first things, things you see is this huge rock platform, right? And every year, Ray Vanderlyn says... 250,000 people would come to Caesarea Philippi for the Festival of Pan, which is this deeply, uh, we've got young years here, so it's this deeply immoral place. I'll say it like that. And the immorality was not hidden. It was right there on that rock platform. Now, one of the things about Caesarea Philippi, there's a, there's a hillside that overlooks the town. And, and where we were sitting, off to the right, is the rock platform. And, of course, we know, if you've grown up in church, Jesus, Jesus says, hey, um, who do men say that I am? And some of the disciples chime in. Some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist. And Peter gets it right. You are the Christ, Christos, the Son of the living God. Jesus is like, bingo. And then he goes, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you, you know that the great debate in church history is what exactly is the rock, right? Uh, historically, uh, Catholics have said that the rock is um, Peter himself, that the church would be founded on Peter. Historically, uh, Protestants have said that, no, the rock is actually Peter's confession about the messianic authority of Jesus Christ and his personhood. Ephesians 2 talks about Christ being the cornerstone of the church. But I'm sitting there on this hillside, and Ray Vanderlyn is just taking us through Matthew 16, and he simply goes... And upon this rock, I will build my church. He points to the rock platform. And I go, that's it. 
That rock platform where all the darkness was, where all the immorality was happening, Jesus says, I'm reclaiming that. Church is going to go to places like that, where the enemy has a foothold. I'm going to repurpose that. And it makes sense, because he goes on to say, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, last I checked, and you don't need a degree in Greek for this, gates play defense. They guard. Gates don't go on fast breaks. Gates don't throw touchdowns. Gates play defense. So notice how he's picturing the church. Church is playing offense. So I'm working these things out because this is kind of where I'm going with, with my next book. But I, I have a real problem with where we are in the race-ethnic unity conversation in America. Right now, we're playing defense. So here's what I want to... If you're here just kind of bracing yourself for the next George Floyd, the next Ahmaud Arbery, and look, Ahmaud Arbery, um, that trial is just going to go the wrong way. If you've seen the jury selection, we're just kind of bracing ourselves here. So, so get ready. So, so the cycle's been Ahmaud Arbery happens. You know, we, we go on our, you know, our little runs. We post it on social media. We react. My DMs light up. Give me something to read. There's this spike. Um, we sell a bunch of books, um, and then it dies down. Then Breonna Taylor happens, another spike. Right? I, 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 you know, tell me what to preach on. My DMs explode. I'm like, I'm grieving here. I don't want to assign homework. And then it dies down. And then George Floyd happens. We are playing defense. That is not the way Jesus pictured the church. Well, how do we play offense? We, we have to have a vision for robust, holistic discipleship. And this is the foundation of our time together. Here's my argument. I think discipleship in the West, discipleship in America, is almost exclusively postured vertically. So when we talk about discipling people, we are really getting after your relationship with God. That, that's the implicit way that is, and, and it fits the individualistic narrative of America. I'm going to show you how to have a good quiet time. I'm going to show you what life in the Spirit looks like. I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to show you how to study the Bible. Yes and amen, but discipleship has its roots in the East. And when Jesus comes to earth, he doesn't do a bunch of one-off, one one-on-one meetings. He puts a group together, and in this group are people who don't fit. Simon the Zealot. This modern-day... Al-Qaeda, doing life with Levi. We would call him an Uncle Tom. 
same group. One's working for the man. The other is carrying a sword just ready to pop off. And Jesus communally gives us a robust vision for discipleship so that discipleship is not just me and Jesus and my Bethmore bobblehead doll. I love Bethmore, by the way. But it's also horizontally. How do I frame it with others? When the horizontal piece is lacking, what then happens is, and I know Doug Wilson doesn't like this, but what then happens is empathy is missing. My friend Eric Mason hit the nail on the head. Eric Mason says proximity breeds empathy. Um, I I don't want to mix these narratives, but I'll I'll just give it to you just, just so you understand what I'm talking about. The best thing that happened to me pastorally is Shay and Yolanda. It's a lesbian couple. I had the joy. We just got to know each other through AAU. Uh, we did life together. I talk a lot about them in my book, uh, Insider Outsider. I led their son to faith in Jesus. Their son then comes home and says, y'all are going to hell. I've got to work on your evangelism strategy. <laughs> says, y'all are going to hell. They then start coming to our church, sitting next to me. You tend to write sermons differently and preach them differently when the people you're referring to ain't out there but are actually in here. Didn't change my convictions, but it softened my edges. Gave me empathy. So what what am I arguing here for? Church needs to play offense. The way we play offense is by offering a robust discipleship strategy that is both vertical and horizontal. This is why the book of Acts is important. Um, When Paul walks into a town, two questions. Where's the synagogue? Where's the Gentiles hang out? Goes to synagogue, shares Christ, some Jews come to faith. He then goes Mars Hill in Athens. Hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus, other places. Uh, Acts 18, he's in Corinth. Corinth. You reason daily with Jews and Gentiles. What does he do? Jews come to faith, Gentiles come to faith. He doesn't start two churches, starts one church, puts them together. See, that's what I'm saying. The roots of our church are multi-ethnic. We're going to put you together. Now, here's we're, we're working these things out at Summit, where we're at. Brand new. And, and here's a pushback you, you'll get when you get some of this. The problem with our culture is they, they're, they're being more discipled by Rachel Maddow and Sean Hannity and Don Lemon than they are by Jesus. So now when you start doing these things, they hear diversity, racial reconciliation, ethnic unity. They put it in a political box because that's who's been discipling them. So what we simply say to them is, listen, all we are after is we just, want, we, we just want our sanctuary to look like our mission field. What's driving this is missiology. Diversity should not be your number one goal. 
but a drive to reach people in your mission field. That's your goal. And the reality is most mission fields are now becoming more and more diverse. So that's where we're going. When I do this, Dr. Corey Edwards, hopefully you are acquainted with her, Jesus-loving black woman, assistant professor of sociology at the Ohio State University. Yuck. Um, um, she says the average community that a church sits in is 10 times more diverse than the church, and the average schools in a community that a church sits in are 20 times more diverse than the church. So when people ask me, should every church be multi-ethnic? No, but chances are, yes. Because what drives us isn't a political agenda of being diverse. What drives us is a gospel greed to see everyone around us know Christ as Lord and Savior. You with me? So now what happens is I then place them in the same context. It's the local church. And what is now happening as a byproduct, they're getting discipled to God, and they're now being discipled one towards another. I mean, J.D. and I are walking through 1 Corinthians right now. Corinth is a multi-ethnic church. That's why he talks about food. If you're homogenous, food ain't no issue. Eat your kosher meal and shut up. Sorry. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. That's, I shouldn't say that. But when you're a multi-ethnic church and the Gentile family invites the Jewish family over to your house for dinner and you're looking at a rack of ribs, we have a problem. So why does Paul talk about food? It's multi-ethnic, right? Multi-ethnic church is a beautiful headache. It's a beautiful headache. Why? Because ethnic diversity breeds all other kinds of diversity. Theological diversity around the non-essentials. Um, you know, we've got people at the summit who are cessationists. Other people are Pentecostal. Other people are open but cautious. And other people have no idea what I just said. <laughs> it's the beauty of it, right? And the goal is to not clone people into your own cultural image. It is to create a space for you to exhibit the fullness of the Imago Dei in such a way that it preserves the unity of the body. Okay. All right. So now we're at the multi-ethnic church. And again, all this is review. I'm sure you've been taught this. When we talk about the multi-ethnic church, we're talking about a church that meets what sociologists call the 80-20 rule. And what that means is no one ethnic group makes up more than 80% of the body. You with me so far? So we've got 100 people and 81 of them are Korean. You're not multi-ethnic, but you know, if you're between that 20 to 80%, you are multi-ethnic. Now, why the 80-20 rule? Sociologists tell us because 20% is critical mass. It is the minimal threshold in which a minority feels heard, valued, and esteemed. So I just want you to imagine a minority walks into your small group, and by the way, the 80-20 rule, I, I don't think that should just be what we think through in large group settings. We should also think through it in small group settings. When we, when we were just planting our church, um, 
you know, we intentionally, as best we could, you know, we tried to spread the minorities out in our small group system, uh, especially when we knew we were going to have conversations about ethnic unity. We wanted to meet that 80-20 rule, all right? So imagine a minority comes to your small group, comes to your sanctuary for the first time. They're standing in the back. You meet the 80-20 rule. Something happens uh, psychologically where they go, this could be home here. Just given the eye test, this could be home. Uh, and so that's really what you're after. Um, so I just, I just finished my dissertation. I just, um, I just defended it uh, earlier this year. So I've just been in nerddom for the last three years. But they did a study on the multi-ethnic church from 1998 to 20, to. Uh, 2019, the study came out, no, through 2020, I'm sorry, study came out in January of 2021, multi-ethnic churches in evangelical spaces, not liberal progressive mainline spaces, multi-ethnic churches in evangelical spaces, surprisingly, they've actually tripled from 7% in 1998 to 22% in 2020. Now, my friend David Kinneman, uh, who runs uh, Barna, He's doing a study right now. I actually think the numbers are going way down. I think 2020 just wreaked havoc. Um, I hope that's not the case, um, but that's probably the case. All right? So what I want you to understand, and I understand you guys have gone through the theological reason as to why you should go after this. I'm not going to spend time there. This is hard for me to even imagine saying but what the data points to among evangelicals, this is so confusing, is that multi-ethnic is becoming a felt need. It's becoming a felt need. Now, many don't want to pay the cost. I'm not saying they're all about it, but that is, that is the way culture is forming us. And there's some good things about that. So there are theological reasons why you should consider this. There are sociological reasons why you should consider this. Most communities are trending into diversity. But there's also very pragmatic reasons why, you're, uh, why you should consider this. Many people are now moving to an area in Googling diverse church. Okay? So I want you to understand that. Now, one more thing before we get into um, the nuts and bolts of solutions. Three kinds of multi-ethnic churches. Not all multi-ethnic churches are alike. Corey Edwards says that there are three kinds of multi-ethnic churches. Um, one kind is what we would call the multi-color, multi-ethnic church. Um, so I want, I want you to picture it this way. It's sort of like the NBA All-Star game. People from different teams show up, they play in the event, when the event's over, they go back to their teams. They're there for the event, but there's no real this. The event, you know, that, that's the multicolor, multi-ethnic church. They show up, it gives them street cred. But I've learned the hard way over the years, just because you, you can go, I'll say it this way, you can go to a multi-ethnic church and be racist. You can have a veneer, a form, 
Second, the second kind of multi-ethnic church is the worst kind of church out there, I believe. When we talk about race relations, it's the assimilated multi-ethnic church. Multi-ethnic monocultural. Multi-ethnic monocultural. Um, there is a clear ethnic home team, a clear cultural home team. So we want minorities to come in. We want your faces. We don't want your voices. Now, um, Acts 15, first church council happens. They're dealing with Jewish evangelicalism. Paul's planted all these churches, um, and in the wake of him leaving, Jewish leaders come in, the Judaizers, and they pretty much tell these Gentile converts, you're on the JV side of the kingdom. If you want to be on the varsity side of the kingdom, you need to be circumcised. And so the nature of the first church council is, do you have to act Jewish to be saved? And the verdict is absolutely not. Jewish leaders got together, and from jump, they disempowered Judaism's grip on Christianity. We need white evangelicals. We don't need white evangelicalism. It is a cultural thing that will kill the vitality of a multi-ethnic church. And the problem with white evangelicalism, remember, I'm not mad. The problem with white evangelicalism is that our white brothers and sisters do not consciously see themselves as being white. See, if I could talk to my younger 20-something self, I'd say, Brian, relax. A lot of what you're calling racism is not racism. It's just ignorance, not in a pejorative sense. They just don't. White people do not consciously see themselves, by and large, as being white. That's a problem. I know I'm quoting her often, but Corey Edwards, her analogy is having, it's like having a one-arm and a two-arm society. Right now, and I mean no disrespect, but... I think the eye test, all of us have two functioning arms. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, none of you have probably thought about that reality today. It's just kind of how you roll. But if I had one arm, I can't get away from my limitations. That's the experience of the minority. We are consciously in touch with our otherness. W.B. Du Bois, his most famous quote, this whole idea of double consciousness. Right? So one of the most redemptive things you can do, my white brothers and sisters, is to flip a switch and embrace the reality that you're white. See, it's become sport to make fun of white, and I think that's a, that's a dishonor and a disservice to God. Because a part of what it means to be made in the Imago Dei is it's not just my spirit that has been made in the image of God. It's also my, my ethnos. 
race is bad, ethnicity is not. Race is this construct in America where we crafted a system that extends value to some and extracts values from others based on the color of their skin. That's demonic. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Ethnos, which is the primary word used in the scriptures, Septuagint in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, it's the primary word used for people groups. Revelation 5, John actually says, I looked up into heaven, I saw people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. How would you know on sight differences among people groups unless you saw differences of color? So, my new glorified body, I'll be black in heaven, hopefully with a much higher metabolism. That's just... That's so mind-boggling because the enemy has done such a number on us with this race thing, we actually think it's spiritually mature to say, I don't see color. It's unbiblical. So, what am I saying? White people, embrace the fact that you are white. Now, I need a pop-up blocker. All these thoughts are coming. That's why I hate the phrase white privilege. I didn't think anybody would say amen on that one. I don't like the phrase white privilege because it demonizes privilege for the sake of privilege. If privilege was innately wrong, then Jesus was innately wrong. No one came to earth more privileged than Jesus. In fact, Philippians 2 is the seminal text on privilege. Have this mind among yourselves that was was, uh, in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. The issue isn't privilege. It's the stewardship of privilege. Privilege. What are you doing with it? All of us in this room have a measure of privilege. My parents have been married for 50 years. They love Jesus. That is a measure of privilege. I am not, listen, reality is our country still caters towards whiteness. Um, I I could just tell you stories. I I remember my wife and I in Pasadena, California, uh, a month or two, a couple months before we got married, we were looking for the place that would be ours after uh, our wedding, which that was a huge fight. I mean, I had found this sweet place about a year before and was living in it, but my wife was like, but that's your place. I'm like, yeah. So I had to pay an extra 600 bucks a month so that it feels like ours. I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. Um, So... You know, I go to this lady, an uh, older white lady, and says, well, how much? It's just me talking to her. She looks at me and says, I'll need six months in advance <clears throat> for an apartment. I said, something's off here. I sent my wife. My wife is half Mexican, half Irish. Um, and uh, she, this same apartment, same lady, she looks at my wife and says, just give me first and last month. It's just, it's just the reality of things. I got a million stories like that. So do we live in a society that 
slants towards whiteness even today? Absolutely. Should you as a white person feel bad for being white? Absolutely not. However, if you are not stewarding your privilege in such a way, see, Tim Keller says, righteousness is disadvantaging myself for the advantage of others. It's biblical righteousness. It is disadvantaging myself for the advantage of others. That's Jesus. Philippians 2. He emptied himself. Why? I'm headed to the cross. I didn't come here for my comfort. Wickedness, Keller says, is the exact opposite. It is advantaging myself to the disadvantage of others. So, if you as a white person are not embracing the reality that God's created you white, that you are in a system that still slants towards whiteness, and you're not wrestling with how do I steward that? See, I think that's a you and Holy Spirit thing. I don't know if you really get the gospel. And I've got to wrestle with the same thing. You know? My wife and I wrestle this. We wrestle with it about our finances. We, how are we using this house? We're about to be empty nesters. Praise the Lord. <laughs> a 20-year-old in Arizona, 18-year-old in L.A., 16-year-old. Man, you got a year and a half, you're out of here. I could care less where you go. You are out of here. Well, empty nesters, what are we going to do with this house? Opportunity to disadvantage ourselves. For the advantage, I think that's a universal Christian question that all of us should be wrestling with. So the problem here is, the problem is when you get a church that says we want to be multi-ethnic, so we want black faces, but it does not empower those faces to now become voices to shape the culture. You do violence to the Imago Day in the lives of people. You do violence. So, the third level is what we want. The integrated multi-ethnic church. That's not a box to be checked. It's a tension to be managed. Let me, let, me, let me give you this definition or description of the integrated multi-ethnic church. It is a church where there is an equitable discomfort, a mutual, a mutual laying down of personal preferences and cultural norms for the glory of God and the good of others. It is a mutual laying down of personal preferences and cultural norms for the good of others and the glory of God. In order to get here, you are going to have to do violence to the American idol of comfort. This is not your church. It's God's church. And if you leave every worship set saying, they sang every song I liked the way that I liked it, we have done you a disservice. 
with me on that? So a part of, see, you, you have to answer this question. This is, this is the roadblock. I do a whole lot of these throughout the course of my life. I come home from trips. My wife says, How, how'd it go? And I'll say something to the effect of, um, eh, they paid really well, but they won't do anything with it. Because there is a cost to this. So you have to answer this question. Here's the question. Do I want to be big or do I want to be a multi-ethnic church? Most of the times those are very conflicting agendas. I told JD, because we're trying to rebuild this thing, we need to to do it right, we're going to need to lose 20 to 30% of people. I don't think you're leading right. <laughs> this is a leadership principle in general. You're not leading well if you don't have a couple people just ticked off at you. You're just not leading well. <laughs> I met with a buddy of mine. He had just got installed at this church like three months before. I says, how's it going? He goes, man, I need to be doing about 10 funerals. It'll be going really well. <laughs> and he was dead serious when he said it. That's just church folk, man. They, they drive you nuts. They complain about everything. They wear you out. And then they'll be back next Sunday. And you want to go, you have options. <laughs> it's like my 15-year-old just came to, came to me a couple years ago. I don't like it here. I can't wait to get out. And it just took everything within me to say, oh, I have the same thoughts. <laughs> so this is where America and seminaries have done a number on our leaders you're going to have to look yourself in the mirror and say, if I'm going to go down this road, I'm going to go all the way down it. Don't play with this. You've got to have courage. What is your vision of church? Chances are you're going to lose people. And hear me, that's not an excuse to say you can just be contentious and brash and brazen. I, I did a lot of consulting work during 2020, and much of it was just coming from a good place, but it was a zeal without knowledge. You just got up and you went from zero to 100. Right? So we, we, we have to be methodical, right? But that question, you have to settle. You have to settle it as a leader. You have to settle it with your elder team. Because now we're getting into Galatians 2. You know what Galatians 2 is all about? A spineless leader named Peter. Just didn't have courage. Paul says, hey man, we, we got to chat. Because prior to the Judaizers showing up, you were hanging out with Gentiles. Now they show up. You're withdrawing. 
And I just see this a lot of times with well-meaning leaders who just don't have a spine. Couple emails, now they start backing away. We don't need to talk about anything else until you settle that question. All right, so let's move to the solution side of things. I want to just give you some practical how-tos. One of the first things I want to share with you, um, and then I, I, I want to talk about uh, leadership in a gospel framework. Um, so there, there's, my dissertation looks at, it, it specifically looked at our church, the Summit Church, our vision to be 25% minor, minority by 2025, which is incredibly low-hanging fruit. Going into 2020, we were 19% minority, so one percentage point away um, from a multi-ethnic church. But there's three things uh, that my uh, dissertation just kind of unearthed um, that you just have to be committed to if you're going to become multi-ethnic, stay multi-ethnic, all right? Um, one is um, uh, reliable leadership. Reliable leadership. Everything begins and ends with leadership. I want to talk to you some about that. Two is a robust gospel. And there I'll use the language. When I say robust, I mean a gospel that is both vertical and horizontal. And then three, um, relational environments. Relational environments. You've got to create spaces where we can do life with one another across the ethnic and economic divide. It's not even that we're talking about this stuff, but we're just in proximity with one another. All right? Robust gospel, reliable leadership, relational environments. Okay? Now, what I want to give to you now is the communication pyramid, which I think is a framework that's going to help you in relational environments. It's going to help you as leaders when you think through this. This is the, um, it's a real paradigm shifter. It's a real paradigm shifter as it relates to how you, how you interact with people relationally, um, in your marriage, in your friendships, um, uh, with people who are uh, of different ethnicities or people of the same ethnicity, but I want to put it in a multi-ethnic category. In essence, there are so if, if I give you anything, if you take anything away from our time together, I want you to take this, this with you. So if you can just kind of write this down on a sheet of paper. Um, a guy by the name of Dr. Tim Muehlhoff, PhD from the University of North Carolina in communications, professor at Biola University. He, he didn't come up with the communication pyramid. He's really uh, popularized it, though. Five levels of communication. Okay, you ready? Um, starting at the top, which is the most superficial, uh, cliche, good morning, good morning, how are you? You've communicated, but you really haven't communicated. It's such a southern thing. By the way, every time I come to Indiana, I get so confused. Because it feels southern, but it also feels midwestern. Which are you? Am I the only one who feels confused along those lines? Anyways, I, I digress, all right? So the most superficial level of communication is cliche. Good morning, good morning, how are you? You've communicated, but you haven't communicated. Levels two and three. Uh, fellas, I hate to pick on us, but this is where most of us hang out. This is sports center talk. Level two is facts, okay? The Lakers are sure an old team, and they're struggling right now. I love every bit of it, okay? Um, 
you know, uh, who won, the Warriors won last night. I mean, just, you're just kind of giving facts, okay? Uh, level three is opinion. Uh, you are sharing what you think, right? I'm just kind of giving my, my opinion here. Uh, is LeBron James the greatest of all time? Of course he's not. It's not even close. Like, I don't even understand why we're having that conversation. It's clear that it's Michael Jordan. I mean, we all saw what he did to the Pacers. Uh, it, I'm sorry. Um, but... I digress. So, you know, you've just got opinions on stuff, right? Uh, that's levels two and three. Level four, levels four and five are indicator lights uh, as it relates to your strongest relationships, friendships, the health of your marriage. Uh, all great relationships at some point get to level four. Level four is emotive. It's sharing how you feel. Um, women should have said amen right there. Um, it's sharing how you feel. Um, by the way, this is, this is the hermeneutical challenge of the Psalms. Like, have you ever read um, one of David's Psalms, uh, let's say Psalm 55, where David, the context of that, he's running away from Ahithophel and Absalom, and, and uh, you know, he's abdicated his throne, and here he is, he goes, God, send my enemies to hell. You're like, whoa, it's not a good theology of enemies, right? Have you ever just gone, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. Here's our problem with the Psalms. Our problem with the Psalms is we're looking at it from level two communication. When David is at level four, God, this is how I feel, which, by the way, I think that's why God calls him a man after his own heart. Because God says, when you pray to me, I'm just not getting facts. I'm getting feelings. How's your prayer life? Are you just giving God facts? Are you just giving the all-knowing God facts? Holy Spirit, did you know he needs new tires? God can handle your theologically incorrect feelings. Level five is transparency. Transparency is hard to quantify. It's just it's sharing who you are. We've all been there. You've, you leave a cup of coffee with somebody, and it, something intuitively within you just goes, I experienced them. I didn't experience what Paul Dunbar calls the mask. I experienced them. Them. Here's the problem, and this is why it's so important to put this within a multi-ethnic framework. The problem, Robin DiAngelo says, um, and of course there's many things that are problematic with, um, with what she, with her level three communication, but um, Robin DiAngelo, a white sociologist, she says, and she's not making a moral uh, judgment on this. She says, white people see themselves as a collection of individuals. Black and brown communities see themselves far more communally. Right? Um, so, you know, w when Elizabeth Smart went through that horrific uh, ordeal where she was abducted, the average white person did not go to church that Sunday hoping the pastor would say something. 
not making a moral judgment, but because white people see themselves as a collection of individuals, you don't necessarily see yourself as a people group and a people group who's in solidarity with another individual that you don't share DNA with. It's just a disconnect. I am not moralizing that. I am not saying you're a bad person because of that. What I am saying, you have to acknowledge that and realize that is a different cultural deal than, let's say, black people. By the way, parenthesis. Um, it, if there's one book I could recommend you read, um, if you're really trying to, I don't know what Indiana's demographics are, I should have looked at before I came, with the Asian community, there's a book that just came out by a brilliant Asian writer on the Asian experience in America as a people group. He calls, the name, the name of the book is The Loneliest Americans. One of the things he says in this book that's really, really helpful is he says the black-white binary is a strong narrative binary. And he says what that does to minorities who are not black or white is that binary is so strong you feel this pressure to gravitate to one extreme, to pick a side. Um, and so he unpacks what that looks like. So when I talk black-white, that's actually a good framework because the minorities you deal with who aren't black or white, they are feeling this pressure to identify with the oppressed. Is that going to be my narrative? Or do I want upward mobility and just kind of blend into whiteness? And then we're into another great Asian book called The, the Myth of the Model Minority. So... I need you to see this disconnect. White people don't see yourselves communally. You see yourself as a collection of individuals. Black people, brown people, Latinos, Latinas, see themselves far more communally. So when George Floyd happens, Brianna, let's not even go George Floyd. I mean, that was just too tragically easy, right? But when something on a national scale happens that has racial overtones to it, black people show up on Sunday and they're going, please say something. Now, here's the real gold. In those moments, what tends to happen is black people go level four. You with me? This is how we feel. White people tend to hang out at level two. Hold on. We don't know the facts. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I've been married for 22 years. I'm learning. Learning. When Corey comes to me, my bride, level four, and I hang out in lawyer land, That ain't a recipe for oneness. But if I want oneness with my bride, let me first stop and feel before we resurface to the facts. Is there a place for facts? Absolutely. If we're in court, 
that's the first and only place you hang out. But in the court of human relationships, let's meet each other at level four. That's exactly what the Bible says. Grieve with those who grieve. Okay? So you have to disciple your people with this framework. They have to know the communication pyramid. It'll revolutionize their marriages, their relationships, their friendships. It will revolutionize the way they interact with people across the multi-ethnic spectrum. Okay. Let's take a breather. I just gave you a lot there. Any questions on the communication pyramid? Okay. I don't know how, this, how your church's role, um, but Soong Chan Ra wrote a book several years ago called Prophetic Lament. His argument in this book is he researched all the worship songs, and he said 95 of them are triumphalistic. He rose from the grave, we have overcome. Less than 5% are lament which means we are shaping and forming a generation and culture of believers to not know how to lament. The exercise of lament is the exercise in group solidarity and empathy. I don't know how you become a successful, thriving, multi-ethnic church without allocating worship, program real estate that allows for the occasional expression of lament. So, I, you know, I get calls all the time. Something tragic happens on Tuesday. Should I change my message? Look, there, there's times to do that. I think actually the best thing you could do is just have an extended prayer time and allow people to lament, to grieve. I think, you know, you know, I know what I just said. We'll give planning center fits, okay? But you got to allow for that. you got to allow for that. All right. So this, you know, we, we, we can, you know, we can say, we can put this in a relational environment grid, you know, as we just think about, Kind of how do we grow together in empathy? That's what, that's, what, that's what we want. We want to grow together. Because when you look at people's social media posts and then the comment section, what grieves me is not the comments, but the so vast disparity. It's like, man, we, if you had a white friend, you wouldn't say it that way. If you had a black friend, you wouldn't say it that way. All right. Now, let's just talk about, someone go to Acts chapter 6, verse 2. Let's just talk about um, the second major thing, reliable leadership. All right, also for relational environments, let me just give you a great resource that I think will really help you. It's really helped us at the summit. Um, there's a resource out there called uh, Multi-Ethnic Conversations. 
I'm just, I'm recommending that all over the place. Mark DeMaz, he spells his name different, D-E-Y, I think, M-A-Z, something like that. Multi-ethnic conversations. It is saturated in scripture. It's meant to be, um, <clears throat> you do it individually throughout the week, then you get together as a group. I think it's like an eight-week thing. But you process it together to get bang for your buck. Obviously, it needs to be a multi-ethnic group. That's just going through this together. Um, and it's just that journey together of experience. But multi-ethnic conversations is a resource under relational environments. All right. Now, let me talk to you about leadership. And I want to specifically address this gentleman's question uh, about culture and ethnicity. Uh, Acts chapter 6, someone read, beginning in verse 1, I think on through verse 2, out loud for all of us. Boom. What translation is that? CSB? Okay. I love that. So, church is going and blowing in the book of Acts. Day of Pentecost happens. Thousands of people show up. I mean, just thousands upon thousands. And Luke is documenting it. And in Acts chapter 6, we have our first hiccup. And our first hiccup happens. It's a clash between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews powerful terms. In these terms are both ethnicity and culture. And we need to have that conversation. They're both Jews, so they both check the ethnicity box, but they ain't getting along because the culture is off. One group of people, they're the Hellenistic Jews. Anybody here know what Hellenism is? Come on, y'all. Yes. Spread of Greek culture. Alexander the Great. When Alexander conquered you, he wasn't just interested in acquiring more land, although that was definitely on the agenda. He wanted to put the Greek cultural thumbprint across the world. So wherever he went, built libraries, um, Koine Greek, which is the common Greek. That was the language of the day. That's what they were speaking when Jesus showed up. Um, so when, when you talk about Hellenistic Jews, you're talking about ethnic Jews who have assimilated into Greek culture. All right. So now we're ready to have the conversation about, because I want to talk about culturally the kind of leader you have to be to lead a multi-ethnic movement, church, organization, whatever it may be. Within every ethnicity, Gary McIntosh says, broadly speaking, there are three cultural stratifications. One is C1s. We would call them, biblically speaking, the Hellenistic Jews. Keyword for C1s is assimilated. They have assimilated into Greek culture. Uh, they probably speak Greek language. They name their kids Greek names. They dress Greek. They eat non-kosher food. They are C1s. Um, praise God for Nick at Night. Praise God for HBO Max, because you can get the whole series on HBO Max and iTunes. Uh, excuse me, Apple Music. Uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It's Carlton. Carlton. Carlton is a C1. I am not attacking Carlton's blackness. 
Because then we got to have a conversation. You have to define for me what does it mean to be black. And I don't think anybody wants to do that. So I am not being negative. I am not being pejorative. But it is obvious Carlton has assimilated into a very different cultural worldview and framework for life. And I don't even unpack all of what that means. Now, this is important because I, I work with a lot of churches and, um, you know, I, I was working with one church. They wanted to hire, um, the pastor genuinely said this to me. Uh, he says, you know, we're sitting down. It's a large church. He says, Brian, I'm looking to hire my first Negro in a hundred and something years. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I says, well, let me help you with your language. Probably shouldn't say that. Um, and I says, well, d- describe to me the position. And he says to me, uh, this person is going to be working with our small group leaders. There's no preaching or teaching. There's no kind of macro-level leadership. And I pretty much said, you need Carlton. You need a C1. Higher threshold uh, of tolerance for some of these issues. Um, they're used to being in environments like this. Um, you know, um, you need someone safe. But you don't need Carlton at the highest levels of leadership in a multi-ethnic church that he will not, she will not move the needle. They're too safe. By the way, how do you discern that? You need to have people on the hiring committee who represent the ethnicity you're trying to hire because you have blind spots. Now, on the other extreme, this lady in her wonderful translation says, there was a group of people called the Hebraic Jews. We will call them C3s. Uh, The key word for them is they are culturally inflexible. Closest biblical example to them are actually the Pharisees. Have you noticed most of the arguments Jesus had with the Pharisees were cultural? Hey, we notice your disciples, they don't wash their hands before they eat. Or what's up with you with your disciples picking heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath? Very cultural. The, the concrete has dried. They, they have a very particular way of doing things. They're not malleable. They're, they're not going to change. The concrete has dried. It's fixed. They are culturally inflexible. They're not changing. Now, I just got finished reading yesterday. Fascinating read. Um, Will Smith's memoir. Really great read. Um, so on the show, not in real life, on the show. Let's go back to Fresh Prince. On the show. Will Smith is a C3 on the show. Have you noticed that him, him and his arguments with Carlton are all cultural? You know, Carlton's from Bel Air. Will is West Philadelphia born and raised. On the playground. I know y'all, some of y'all humming it. I just drop that in your spirit. It's going to be with you till praise and worship tomorrow. Um, but on the show, I don't know if you remember it, but, you know, he goes to this private school. You know, one of the few black kids there. Did you notice how the, how the producer makes him wear his blazer? Inside out. He doesn't fit. And he ain't trying to fit. C3s. Now, should C3s have a place on the bus? Yes, 
I, you know, I counsel, I, you know, I, I counsel white churches all the time, you know. They go, we, we want to do some community work, and we need somebody to just represent as well, pound the pavement. You need a C3. They're going to bring street cred. Um, there's going to be an affinity there. Let's get you a C3. But homeboy or homegirl does not need to preach or have broad-level leadership internally. Why? This is the most contentious thing I'm going to say to you. Remember, I'm not mad. The average white person is a C3. You've been raised a certain way in a society. Is this true of every white person? No. But in a society that very much caters to you. That's why white people don't have a whole lot of threshold for a church that's going to change culturally. That's why they're going to be the ones who are going to be your loudest complainers. Every time they, next time you get a complaining email about stuff you're looking to change, just go, you're a C3. <laughs> they won't know that it mean, what that means. They'll be offended. But they're inflexible. Used to having it your way. So what happens when you put a C3 from one ethnicity in charge of a group of C3s from another ethnicity? Boom! Huge mess. By the way, that was Paul, Philippians chapter 3. He's looking through the rearview mirror of his life prior to Christ. He says, I was born of the nation of Israel, ethnicity, a Hebrew of Hebrews. It's culture. C3. Someone go to 1 Corinthians 9. I'll tell you what verse in a minute. Where, where we want to be are C2s. 1 Corinthians 9. C2s are culturally flexible. C2s are culturally flexible and adaptable able to go in and out of various cultural contexts without losing who they are in the process. C2s are culturally flexible and adaptable, able to go in and out of various cult uh, cultural contexts without losing who they are in the process. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 through 23. Someone read it for me. I love it. I love it. Here's Paul. He's saying, look, I got Jewish friends. To the, Jew, to the Jews, I became a Jew. You might catch me on Monday having a kosher meal with my Jewish friends. But then he goes, I got Gentile friends. That's what he means when he says to those outside the law. All right? So Paul says, look, I, I, my community is eclectic. 
Again, this is the same guy preaches in the synagogue, same guy goes on Mars Hill, same guy just, just does all this stuff. This is C2, culturally flexible and adaptable, able to go in and out without losing. Now, now what's your motivation, Paul? It's not a progressive liberal motivation. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Now, if you're astute, you should be confused right now. Can you wait a minute, Brian? I thought you just said Paul's a C3. You referred us to Philippians chapter 3. Now you're saying 1 Corinthians 9, he's a C2. Philippians 3 is who he was prior to Christ. 1 Corinthians 9 is who he is after Christ, which tells us C2s are made and not born. That encourages me. You do not have to stay where you are. How do you make a C2? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 9. He keeps using a phrase, I have become, I have become, I have become, I have become. One commentator says that phrase, I have become, it is the ability to put yourself in another person's skin in context to feel what they feel. In other words, you make a C2 not by reading a book or sitting in a seminar. Very important. But you make a C2 by immersing themselves as a minority in another person or people group's narrative and experience. That's why I'm so cutting her a check. Corey Edwards says, the homogenous church actually entrenches racism. What is she saying? Here's what she's saying. We all, not you all, we all have biases. And when I'm only around people who pretty much see it the way that I see it, my biases are never challenged. They're only entrenched. That's why it's a means, a powerful means of sanctification. I need people in my life who see it differently. Ain't that the beauty of marriage? Marriage is a means of grace. I love my wife, but she drives me nuts. And I drive her nuts. And after 22 years, you know, covenant of marriage, I'm a much more compassionate, kinder individual because he put me in relational context with a person that is so different than me. You need that as a means of your formation, and marriage ain't the only place you get it. The church should be the place you get that to. I have become. A guy by the name of Reggie Williams uh, wrote his PhD dissertation on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's now turned into a book. It's called Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. Whew. Amazing. We all know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, age of 21. He's a prodigy, graduates with his PhD, comes over to the United States. It's the 1930s to do a fellowship at Union Seminary, which is a part of Columbia University, which is in Harlem. It's, it's, it's 116th Street, as Bobby Womack says, across 110th Street. I know I just lost some of y'all. You ain't never heard of Bobby Womack in your life. Some of us know about Bobby Womack across 110th Street. So here he is, dude from Germany, 21 years old, 1930s. He says, I probably wasn't saved, but I thought I was saved. So because I thought I was saved, I start looking for churches. So I start looking at these white churches. 
his words, but none of them were really preaching the, the full gospel. So he ends up joining the Abyssinian Baptist Church. Church still in existence today. In Harlem, it's a black church. Bonhoeffer joins a black church. By the way, you do know when we have the multi-ethnic conversation, church is transitioning to a multi-ethnic trajectory. You know there's no such thing as an existing mid to large size black church that became multi-ethnic because it was whites who decided to do what Bonhoeffer did. You, you understand that, right? 1930s. He joins a black church, which means he's following black leadership. He teaches in their Sunday school class, befriends a guy named Albert Fisher. Albert Fisher introduces him to Negro spirituals. Bonhoeffer falls in love with Negro spirituals, takes them back with him. Albert says, look, man, I want to show you something. They get on a train. They go to the Jim Crow South. Bonhoeffer's mind is blown by the segregation and the oppressed. That phrase, cheap grace, he didn't come up with that. He got it from his black pastor, Adam Clayton Powell. We've been fed this one-way narrative. Bonhoeffer says, I don't go back to Germany and stand up for the oppressed Jews unless I first go to Harlem and, and join the black church. What changed him? I have become. As a means of your own spiritual formation, you need to I have become. That's the incarnation. What situations and context are you in that you're the minority? And you ain't leading, you following, you serving. What situations are you in for the good of your soul? You have to have that. You need to follow minority leadership. My kids, man, you know, we were really intentional about trying to architect a diverse life experience. And we weren't leaning on one entity to be everything, but man, but like their schools kind of typically skewed white. Their churches were always multi-ethnic. Their athletic leagues were black. So sleepovers were just something else. And, uh, you know, white kids get raised a little differently, right? Um, I'm just not into five-year-old kids calling me by my first name. It's just not how I rolled. I know I'm different. To this day, I have to refer to my mama's friends by their last name. And I'm 48 years old. You know, so these white kids come over to my house, welcome, greet them at the door, y'all have a good time. Okay, Brian, up, 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 up. No, we're we going to put a handle on it in this house. It's just culturally different. You ain't going to put your feet up on my coffee table. We just do stuff different. But that's good. It's good for their formation to see different. And it's good for my kids to see them. Hey, Dad, I just got home from Johnny's house. His mama lets me call her Margaret. I'm glad you enjoyed that, because we... 
it's different, and we have to give each other space. If my salvation doesn't depend on it, then there should be latitude. But what are you doing in the way of Jesus, in the ilk of Bonhoeffer, to I have become? If we're going to lead a multi-ethnic church or movement, we've got to be people who are in the journey of becoming a C2. And the way that gets worked out is relationally. It's relationally. 